0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God As the scriptures say I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent So where does this lead the philosophers the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God, in his wisdom, saw to it, but the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say, It's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength.
1: Well, if you've just joined us uh, uh, today, we are uh, halfway through a series of messages called Not a Fan. And uh, these sermons uh, are bringing us to a fork in the road where we are confronted with the question, are we fans of Jesus or are we followers of Jesus? Are we fans of Jesus or are we followers of Jesus? And the implications of how we answer that question is really quite staggering. It changes everything about how we journey through this life. Jesus said, uh, in Luke chapter 9 verse 23, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, as you know, there are a lot of uniquely shaped, shaped crosses uh, that hang on buildings and on our necks and in pictures and on graphics. Here are just a few of those uh, crosses. And they're just a small sampling. Uh, And it's interesting how we have taken an instrument of torture, an instrument of execution, and we have turned it into an acceptable work of art, a beautiful piece of jewelry. And regardless of what you might think of the cross personally, it's very acceptable today in our culture to hang a cross around your neck. Yet on the other hand, we would never think of hanging a guillotine around our neck. (laughs) Now, wouldn't that look weird? We'd get a lot of comments if we put that around our neck. And people would say, well, what is that? Well, it's a guillotine. Well, why would you wear that? Or in today's tolerant culture, everybody to their own. You want to wear that around your neck? That's just fine. Or how about wearing an electric chair around the neck? Wouldn't that look strange? Yet we have taken the cross and we have tamed it. We have made it acceptable. Oh, it's just a cross. We might never really stop to think what it means. Perhaps we've made the cross comfortable. We work all our lives just to be more comfortable. Just one more room in the house would make us more comfortable. A little better ride in the next car. A little better suspension. That would be something that would make us more comfortable. A better mattress next time. Or a lazy boy recliner for the family room would be just right. Comfortable, we place a high value on comfort. So what do comfort craving fans do with the cross? What do we do with these words? If anyone wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily and follow me. Well, we find a way to work with that. Perhaps we create a comfortable idea of the cross. We adopt the words. Oh, we all have crosses in our, in our life. We all have crosses to bear. And sometimes that means merely an inconvenience. We have to use the second car while the main car is being repaired. It, may, it might mean we have to go the extra mile in helping a family member who's going through a tough time. It might mean a delay in taking a vacation to a certain part of the world. Or we're used to saying Edmonton weather, that's the cross that we have to bear. And so gradually the cross gets tamed. And the cross becomes comfortable. Here's a little video clip that will just continue the thought.
2: Sometimes in an effort to get as many people as possible to follow Jesus, I have with good intentions, made following Him sound as attractive, as appealing as possible. So I've talked a lot about the unconditional joy, the peace that passes understanding, the grace and mercy that frees us from all of our guilt and shame. Those things are true and they are beautiful and they should be spoken of often. But I've realized that I have been guilty of selling Jesus. Of emphasizing only the parts about Jesus that I thought people would like. this way imagine if my oldest daughter grows up and goes to college and after a number of years isn't married but she really wants to be and so I decide to help the process along and I take out an ad in the newspaper and I put up a billboard sign and print up t-shirts begging someone to come and choose her wouldn't that cheapen who she is Wouldn't that make it seem like they were doing her a favor? I would never do that. If you want to come and get to know her, you better come with everything you've got or I'll send you a packet. May I
1: sketch a quick picture for you of how the Apostle Paul ran into this buzzsaw back in the first century? the issue of what to do with the cross. The passage is 1 Corinthians, uh, the passage that Deb just read for us. Now anyone who is uh, effective in marketing knows what to say and what not to say. You have to learn that quickly if you're in sales. When you describe the product that you're selling, you look for that which will appeal to the potential buyer. What do they want to hear? What don't they want to hear? So you tailor-make the presentation to fit the listener. It appears that the congregation in Corinth may have been somewhat in danger of packaging the gospel in ways that might sell a little better to their listeners. What do they want to hear? What don't they want to hear? Some have suggested that the Corinthians weren't entirely comfortable with the cross because when they talked about the cross in the public square, people laughed at them. They said, oh, that's foolish. That's ridiculous. Crazy bunch. So we come to this pivotal verse this morning in 1 Corinthians 1, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Some reactions to the cross. The word uh, message in verse 18 has the connotation of being the essential message. The, the slice of the gospel that cuts into the human heart and brings salvation. It's called the kerygma. It's the good news. It's the salvation that brings us into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So when Paul talks about the message of the cross in this verse, he means that most integral part of God's grace and love to us through what Christ has done for us on the cross. There are two extreme reactions to the message of the cross. What are they? Well, the first reaction is foolish, crazy. Paul uses the word foolish. The cross to those who don't get it is simply foolish. It's foolish for those who are headed for destruction. Now you might be reading the word perishing. It's foolish to those who are perishing. The word perishing in the the Greek is an ongoing process that describes those who are perishing day by day by day. It's not just ultimate perishing somewhere out there in eternity, it's perishing every day. So if you're without Christ, if the cross has not touched your life, Paul is inferring that you are in a state of perishing. You're dying a little bit every day. My picture is that you're moving further and further away from shore. You're getting out deeper and deeper and deeper into the ocean, into the sea. You're moving out from shore, getting beyond rescue. The mark of a perishing people is how they react to the cross. They call the cross foolish. The word foolish has a little history with the first way, the first, uh, way, the way first century people dealt with new ideas. The Greeks particularly loved to debate. I understand that's still true in coffee shops in Greece today. They love to talk and debate. They're interested in ideas. They love to get a good issue in front of them and the Corinthians would go anywhere to hear a great speaker. And what the speaker said made no difference. It was how he said it that mattered. If the debaters' arguments did not fully come together philosophically, logically, Corinthians called the speech foolishness or silly or that's just stupid. And the message of the cross of the gospel didn't come together well for the Corinthians philosophically, logically, according to the world's logic. And Paul is telling the church in Corinth the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, the essential message is not going to flow well when people get together to debate ideas. They're going to look at the message of the cross and say, ah, It doesn't make sense. It's foolish. It's dumb. So, in other words, I think you can hear him saying, but don't let that deter you. Don't water down the essential message of the cross and think I need to say what people want to hear. I need to tailor make the message according to what people want to hear. And I thought, what a good reminder for us, friends, for the 21st century church. In fact, we had this discussion at our home group just a couple of weeks ago. The issue of presenting the clear gospel of Jesus Christ and the issue of reaching a world for Jesus Christ today. A world that is often offended by the cross. There's a tension there. Do we change the message? Do we adapt the message? Do we hold back on the message? And hear me on this, because I totally agree with what Greg is saying. There is wisdom in building bridges to our world. There is wisdom in going slow as we develop relationships. There is wisdom in listening and caring and reaching out. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. Yes, there's wisdom. There is sensitivity in presenting the message of the cross, but it never means changing the message. To change the message from the message of the cross is to completely lose the message. So Paul is saying, don't water down the essential message of the cross. Now there's another reaction to the cross, and you see it there, don't you? But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. But we who are being saved know that it's the very power of God. And once again, you see the process. For those of us who are in the process of being saved. For those of us who are journeying with Christ day by day and by day and finding fellowship with Him, their response to the cross is this, it is the power of God. I can't live this way unless I'm living it by the cross. It is the essence of who I am in Christ. So my neighbor says to me, not all that long ago, I'm glad for you that you can put your faith in God through Jesus Christ. I call it a crutch, but it works for you. So he said, no, I, honestly, I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you. In other words, it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm glad it makes sense to you, and, and I'm fine with that. He's saying it is a lot more complicated than what you make it out to be. I can't add it all up and make sense of it. He didn't say it, but he implied it as foolishness. But if you want to go along with it, you're welcome. The message of the cross. Some get it and say, oh my, that's just everything to me. And some say, I don't get it. I don't get it. Albert Einstein wrote things that suggested that he had some sort of a belief in God. But he also wrote of his unbelief. James Randerson says that Einstein penned a letter on January 3, 1954 to the philosopher Eric Goodland, who had sent him a copy of, the book, of his book, Choose Life, The Biblical Call to Revolt. And so Einstein wrote back to him and said, the word God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends, which are nevertheless pretty childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle for me, can change this. What he's saying is it's foolishness. So that was the flavor in the Corinthian church. They were intimidated by all the talk of the intelligent people. They were intimidated by the philosophers who said that the cross was silliness. And Paul says, don't buy it. It's never been true. And it's not true today. The power and strength of our lives rests in the work of the cross. And I love this verse if you're following in verse 19, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. He said, Paul says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Wow. God has given us a very exciting ministry in this community. We need to build every bridge we can to this community. People are looking for a place of belonging. Mark and I met a man from Mexico just a few days ago, this past week. Recently moved to Canada with his family. Mark said, do you have a place where you're getting to know some people in our country? And he said, yes. We're starting to go to a church, the Good Shepherd Church in the West End, which of course we know very well. And Mark said, great. They're looking for a place of belonging. And God has blessed us with a great group of people here who welcome and reach out each Sunday with a handshake and a hug to say, this is a place where you can belong. And I want to say thank you for doing that. Don't ever stop. Don't ever become a consumer. Let the generosity of the brunch be simply a way to pay it forward. Pay it forward. Go and do likewise. Keep heads up for people who need your greeting and your care this is a place for you and for your whole family. The brunch is such a blessing. I was thinking the other day, I can't imagine ever being a pastor of a church somewhere else and not having the bonus of a brunch. It would be so conditional that I would accept a a church without a brunch. It is just a marvelous bridge. But while I say that, I also say the message is very clear to proclaim the message of the cross because it is the very power of God. I wouldn't want anyone to think that being a follower is just showing up for church, going through a few songs and a few religious motions and then having brunch. A fan can do that. A follower says, the cross and the resurrection are at the very heartbeat of my life and I want others to know it too. Some will call the message foolishness and some will be rescued. And people say all the time, how is that? To which I have no answer. Some will call the message foolishness and some will be rescued. Secondly, the results of the cross. What are the results of the message of the cross? Verse 25. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Did you hear that? The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans and God's weakness is stronger than the the greatest of human strength. That's the result Isn't that a great response? It's a a great counter-response. God's foolishness, if you want to put it in those terms, is a lot wiser than the very height of human wisdom. And the weakness of God, if you want to put it in those terms, is so much stronger than the greatest human strength that you've ever seen. You know that for living in the first century, the cross was the ultimate symbol of weakness. I mean, why, why would you, why would God use a symbol of torture and of death and of weakness to save the world? But isn't that just like God? God takes what from a human perspective is foolish. He he takes what has no glory and carries no honor And he uses it in an amazing way. He finds the least likely symbol for love and life. And he says, I'll use that. God takes what, what the world says is foolish and demeaning and shameful and says, watch this. And he turns it into the power of salvation. Think of it. Who else but God could take a cross that represented defeat and turn it into a symbol of victory. Who else but God could take a cross that represented guilt and turn it into the symbol of grace? Who else but God could take a cross and that represented condemnation and turn it into a symbol of freedom? Who else but God could take a cross that represented pain and suffering and turn it into a, a symbol of healing and hope? Who else but God could take a cross that represented death and turn it into a symbol of life? If there's anything I... I, You know, when you hear a pastor go on and on, but if there's anything that I would have you take home today, it's this. What God did at the cross, He can do for you. What God did at the cross, He can do for you. When you are weakest, you are exactly where you need to be for God to be the strongest. The upside down truth of the cross is that when you are weak, you're actually strong. Now, isn't that opposite from anything you ever learned? And look at what Paul says in verse 27. That God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And friends, you can see that all through the scripture, how God demonstrates that truth, that upside down truth. Abraham was old, and yet God said he was going to bless Abraham and Sarah in their old age and give them a child. And Isaac was born. And Jacob was insecure. And Leah was unattractive. And Joseph was humiliated. And yet God took him from that prison and elevated him to the position of prime minister. And Moses stuttered. But God took him and led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Gideon was poor, and Samson was proud, and Rahab was immoral, and David had an affair, and Elijah was suicidal, and Jeremiah was depressed, and Jonah was disobedient, and Naomi was a widow, and John the Baptist was eccentric, and Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered, and Martha worried a lot, and Zacchaeus was unpopular, and Paul had poor health, and Timothy was timid. And so the Bible is a long list of imperfect people who discovered that weakness is strength. So Paul says, I delight in my weakness because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, I don't know anybody who naturally delights in their weakness. In fact, most of us go to great lengths to disguise our weaknesses. Have you ever been to a job interview and been asked the challenging question what's your greatest weakness? I've asked that many times and now I look at it and say, oh, that's a tough question. What a question to make people as diplomatic as possible in their response. How do you answer that? You can't say, I'm never on time. (laughs) You can't say, I constantly procrastinate. I have trouble getting along with co-workers. You better not say that. And you shouldn't say, I just don't know how to turn on the computer. (laughs) Say any of that and you're done. But you have to say something. You're not squeaky clean. And so, aha, what do we say? I'm a bit of a perfectionist. (laughs) That'll work. I have tendencies toward being a workaholic. Any employer will, oh, that's the right side to be on. What a different message. Paul says strength comes when we realize our weakness. I've been reading a novel uh, during the time we were away. Now that I'm back, I've not been reading it any longer. But it's called The Curate of uh, Claston by George MacDonald, written back in the 1800s, the time of C.S. Lewis. And it's a great book. It's a great novel. He has a way of writing a novel and it becomes a work of theology in his storytelling. And he tells of a young curate, a uh, young pastor back in England who went into the ministry but wasn't sure why. There was a lot of choices. He chose to do this. And God put people in his pathway to actually lead him to Christ. Yes, a pastor. To, to show him the power of the cross and it's a wonderful story, it's been, it's been translated from the old English to make it a little more readable and I recommend it highly to you for some fun reading before you go to sleep at night. It reminded me of the story that in the late 1800s, Charles Berry, an English preacher, became the pastor of the great Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. And one day, Barry described how earlier he had come to Jesus Christ because there had been a time in Barry's early ministry where he preached a very thin gospel. He was very much like this curate who hadn't really come to faith in Christ. And as did the Corinthians, he looked upon Jesus as merely a noble teacher but not as a Redeemer And late one night, during his first pastorate, as he sat in his cozy study, there came a knock at his door. And he opened the door and he found a typical Lancashire girl with a shawl over her head and clogs on her feet. And she said, are you a minister? Getting an affirmative answer, she went on breathlessly. You must come with me quickly. I want you to get my mother in. Thinking it was a case of some drunken mother out in the streets, Barry said, you must go and get a policeman. No, said the girl. My mother is dying and you must come and get her into heaven. Well, Barry got dressed, followed her for a mile and a half through lonely streets in the night. He he knelt at the woman's side and he began telling her about how good and kind Jesus was and that he'd come to show us how to live. Then the desperate woman cut him off. Mister, she cried, that's no use for the likes of me. I'm a sinner. I've lived my life. Can't you tell me of someone who can have mercy upon me and save my poor soul? He said, I stood there in the presence of a dying woman, and I realized I had nothing to tell her. I had nothing to tell her. In the midst of sin and death, I had no message. In order to bring something to the dying woman, I leaped back into my mother's knee, to my cradle faith, and I remember what my mother said. And I told her the story of the cross and of a Christ who was able to save to the uttermost The tears began to run down this woman's cheeks. Now you're getting it, she said. Now you're helping me. Barry concluded the story by saying, I got her in. And blessed be God, I got in myself. I got in myself. Sooner or later, we'll all come to the end of our resources. As you know, John DeLef went home to be with the Lord this past week. It's good to have you here this morning, Doris. His heart was not trusting in his own merit, but his heart was trusting in the work that Jesus did on the cross. And it gave him confidence. It gave him peace to go home. You know, we need to learn a lesson from the little children. What do they do when they run out of resources? They come to you. They get tired. They can't cope anymore. They come to their parents. They fall asleep in the car and they just know mom and dad will take care of them, carry them in. They'll be fine. I want to come to a place where I admit my weakness. I want to ask God to show his strength in my life. To do for me what he did at the cross. Because the cross makes it clear
0: that when I'm weak,
1: he's strong. Will you Will you trust God enough to let your weakness be your strength? Will you let go of the need for comfort, the need to be in control, the need to glory in our strengths or accomplishments or our paychecks or our trophies or our co-workers' approval or whatever it is that promotes your strength? Would you let it go and say, Lord, I'm weak, My strength is in you, Lord. My strength is in the power of the cross and in the healing and redeeming work of Christ alone. I love how the writer of the worship song caught this truth. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. One of these days, some of us will come to the conclusion that we don't have all the resources. We will have exhausted all of the routes of living a full life. We will have played the full game and it won't be enough. And like the dying woman, we will need something like the message of the cross. We will say when we hear the message of the cross, now you're getting it. Now you're helping me. And you might be the person who's called upon. You might be the pastor in your family, in your home, to your friends, and you will help them come to the cross. And the response at the end will not be a great intellectual debate. It will be a simple cry to God, Oh Lord, I'm weak. I'm needy. Forgive me. Oh Lord, save me. And in our weakness, God will reach to us and a new life will begin. A new life will begin.